probably equal stacks. So I want to approach this with the utmost of humility and, uh, and meekness. Uh, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I have actually changed my view on this, by the way. Just, just FYI. Um, I'll just tell you from the, from the outset that I believe that the sons of God are, are angels. Okay? And I didn't used to believe that, but I do. But, and we may have some here that believe that the sons of God are the, uh, the descendants of Seth. And that's okay, too. This is not something I would start a new church over, okay? It's not going to be the first church of the fallen angels or the, the synagogue of the Sethite assembly or whatever. This is an in-house debate, okay? But I think I can present to you a fairly decent defense of this position from the Scriptures. And that's, that's all we have to go on, right? It doesn't matter what I think or Reverend Peabody or whoever. I mean, it's, it's what God says. And so if you'll just keep an open mind and stay with me, and if, if by the end of this you're still not convinced, we'll find some common ground, I promise you. Okay? Uh, let's read Genesis 6. It's up there on the... Uh, I've got quite a few slides. I'm going to talk fast, so I'm going to need you to listen fast. And uh, that was a joke. Y'all didn't laugh. It's okay. That's the sign of... It's a harbinger of coming attractions, I guess. Um, I'm going to need you to listen fast. If you don't get all this, I will be glad to email you the PowerPoint, okay? So don't, don't get so busy taking notes that you get lost in the weeds, okay? Because I'll be glad to email this to you. And even my grandson, he's getting all acting up back there. I, I hear him fussing. Case, behave yourself. Love you, boy. All right, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also his flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And Brother Adam's already prayed, so I'm not going to pray again. But that is our text uh, for today. Now, we've been studying in Genesis, and Genesis 4 gave us the story of Cain, right? He killed his brother, Abel. And uh, then we had the lineage of Cain. And we saw that men uh, was not really evolving, was he? He was devolving. He murdered, and uh, Lamech became a polygamist. And, uh, but there were tremendous advances, right? There were advances in poetry, music, metallurgy. Um, but people are getting further and further away from God. Uh, they're not getting closer to God. Now, the flood's going to take place around the year 16... Uh, 56, approximately. You can do the math by going into genealogy in, in uh, Genesis 5, and you start from Adam, and then you put how old he was when Seth was born, and then add how old he was when Enosh was born, and go through all that, and then when you get to Noah, you just add 600 years, because Noah, uh, it happened in the 600 year of Noah's life. And I, by the way, I did that this morning. I was bored, so I... <laughs> I got up and I did the math and I thought, you know, if I want to preach it, it might as well be right. So I, do, I double checked it. Uh, approximately the year 1656. So we got roughly 1600 years of human history and uh, man is not getting better. He's getting farther and farther away from God. Okay. Now there's genealogies, by the way, in Genesis 5. In some of the genealogies, there's room for gaps. Okay. Matthew doesn't include everybody. Luke I don't know if he does or not, but uh, this, this genealogy in, in uh, Genesis 5, there are no gaps. It gives the exact age groups, you know, when they lived and when they died, and the next descendant. First Chronicles chapter 1 has the exact same genealogy. Luke has the exact same genealogy. Those, those ten, uh, ten descendants of, of Adam, from, from Adam to Noah, okay? So I, I hold to a real literal view of the genealogies here, and the time frame is around 1656. Uh, let's go to the first slide. All right. So notice it says, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, Dr. Henry Morris, who's a who was a creation uh, expert, uh, Bible scholar, he came up with an algebraic uh, equation, a formula, based on the lifespan of people in that time and, uh, you know, possible fertility. And he's not dogmatic on it, and I'm not either. But he says it's not 
beyond the realm of possibility that the earth's population was around 7 billion people at this time. So that right away that should tell you there's more than two lines in the earth. There's more than just Seth and uh, Cain, okay? But there's a lot of people. You know, if you're not comfortable with 7 billion, just go with one, you know. That's still a lot of people. That's roughly, it's ironic, isn't it? That's roughly the population of the earth right now. Interesting. Um, we talked about some of the, uh, the advances in technology, but man was not getting better. Uh, he, his life might have been getting more comfortable, but he's getting farther and farther away from God, as we'll see. We should always let the text speak for itself. Always. Um, that's what exegesis is, as we pull out of the text. Eisegesis is reading into the text. And, and we do it all the time. We start out with a preconceived notion, and then we want to see it in the text, okay? But I want you to notice uh, in Genesis 6-1, it says, It came to pass when men began to multiply. Now, the Hebrew word for men is ha-hadam, and you're not going to be quizzed on it. But it means mankind in general. In Genesis 5, I want you to look at this with me. Look, look at Genesis 5. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. Is that okay? I hope so, because I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> if you've got a roast in the crock pot and you need to go, you know, you're not, I'm, you're not going to offend me if you need to get out of here. And if we come to the altar this morning, there are sharp farm implements here, so uh, you might get saved and go straight to heaven if you're not careful. <laughs> uh, Genesis 5, verse 2. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name what? In the day that they were, in the day when who was created? They. Male and female, right? Adam is ha-adam, and it means mankind. That's what it means. So, um, in, our, in our text, back to Genesis 6, 1, when men began to multiply, it means humanity in general. Both male and female. How many of you know you can't multiply unless you got men and women both? That's the only union that will produce a baby. Amen. Okay. And I promise I'm not going to be real graphic today. We'll, we'll use euphemisms wherever possible and, and, uh, and that kind of thing because I know we got mixed company here. All right. Basic translation here of this verse. Mankind, or Adam, singular, Multiplied and daughters, plural, were born unto them. Who? Males and females. It's pretty straightforward, right? Pretty straightforward. But some here uh, see something different. Um, and, and they see um, the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. Let's go ahead and go to the next. Well, no, 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 no. Hold on. Don't, don't go yet. Um. Daughters are born unto them. Verse 2 says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men. All right, now let's go to the next slide. Thank you, Sam. All right. So the first question we have to resolve is, who are the sons of God? Okay. Who are they? The Hebrew phrase is, Benai Ha Elohim. Why don't we go to the source to determine who they are? It's mentioned, the sons of God are mentioned five times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned twice here in Genesis. The only other time is in the book of Job. How many of you know Job's the oldest book in the Bible? It's not Genesis, it's Job. Scholars will tell you that. People smarter, smarter than me. Even Preacher Larry will tell you that because he's smarter than I am. You know, he's been to seminary, Brother Cliff. Job's, now, I don't know if these guys had a copy of Job, you know, if it was in, a, in tablet form or written form, but I'm going to assume that they would be familiar with Job's story. I'm just going to assume that. Okay, Job answers the question for us. You don't even have to turn there. Job 1, uh, 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Interesting fact here. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what they had, by the way, 
in the days of Jesus. That was their Bible. That was the common Bible of the Septuagint because they spoke Greek. In the Septuagint, I should have put it up here, but I didn't. It actually calls them the angels of God in Job. So the translation that the people of Jesus' day had said that, that the sons of God were the angels of God. Uh, it says the same thing in Job 2, verse 1. And the fact that Satan is here should be a clue to us because he's what? An angel, a fallen one, but he's an angel. All right. The other one is Job 38, 7. And it speaks of creation. Now, uh, <laughs> Job and his buddies, they think that, uh, and Brother Cliff, I hate to even preach on this because I know you're an expert on the book of Job. He pre but Job and his buddies kind of think they've got it all figured out. You know, they, uh, they understand the mysteries of the universe. And God interrupts their little think tank. And he says to them, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Okay, that's Job 38. Then when he gets to verse 7, he says, the, and he's talking about the creation of the universe here. And he says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, again, the Septuagint will say the angels of God, shouted for joy. This is, by the way, Hebrew parallelism. The morning stars and the sons of God are saying, this, they're, they're describing the same class of, of individual here. So the Benai Elohim in Scripture are angels. That's, that's what Scripture says. Um, let's go to the next slide. Now some will say, well, hold on a minute, Henry. In the New Testament, it says that Christians are called the sons of God. Yes. We'll get to that in just a moment. Anytime sons of God is used, with the exception of Jesus who is the only begotten son, and that only means unique. Jesus was not created. He's, he's forever been, right? He's God. Whenever it refers to an individual as a son of God, it is a direct creation of God. Now, in Luke's genealogy, Luke 3, it goes through all the, you know, uh, uh, Matthew goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus, but Luke traces it all the way from Mary, I believe, to Adam. And notice in Luke 3, it says, uh, who was the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of who? God. Why is Adam called the son of God? Because he was not procreated. He was created. He was a direct creation of God. Okay? Well, what about Christians? Well, I can answer that one for you too in John chapter 1. And I didn't put the, the initial verse here, but I think if, if you look at verse 10, which is not upon the... Uh, or 11, says he came into his own, and his own received him not. But John 1, 11 says, but as many as received him, verse 12, I'm sorry, as many as received him, to them gave he the authority or the right or the power to become what? Sons of God. The Greek is actually children of God. It's technon theon, but, you know, we're, we're not going to split hairs. Um, now look at the next verse. Which were born not of blood. You see that? Sons of God are not born of blood, nor of the will of flesh, but of who? God. So the folks that say the sons of God are the, son, are the descendants of Seth and the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain, they got a big problem. Because if that's true, then that means a person is born saved. Right? That means that you're automatically a child of God if your mom and daddy was a child of God. Now, is that true? No. You might think it is, but it's not. <laughs> uh, I've met some that thought that. It's not true. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Man, we're rolling here. The daughters of men. Are y'all still tracking with me? I'm not, I'm not into her heretical grounds here yet. Okay. Daughters of men. Uh, Hebrew phrases, but not ha-adam. Ha, ha Easy for me to say. Easy for me to say. All right. This is a generic term for women. Notice it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were pretty. Those that hold the other view, does that mean that the daughters of Seth were ugly? <laughs> Must have been, right, because they had to go slumming, had to go on the wrong side of the tracks to get a girlfriend. Uh, no. This is a generic term for women, Including, 
This, now, this is a real sexist view. If you, if you drill it down, it's actually a really sexist view because it actually says that only the women were ungodly and the men were righteous. And all the men are in here thinking, well, I think that's my interpretation. <laughs> yeah, well, be careful. You got to ride home with that woman. Not me, I drove separately. But, <laughs> um, but that's a real sexist view, actually. But the text doesn't say the daughters of Cain. It says the daughters of Adam. And what does Adam mean? Mankind. Let the text speak for itself, and it'll answer your questions. Okay. Also notice the one-way terminology here. Notice it was only the sons of God that took the daughters of men. If this were an unequal yoke situation, as happens all the time, amen, we would see the daughters of God marrying the sons of Cain, right? That's how it works now. But this is one way, right? You see that? It's one group, the sons of God and the daughters, uh, taking the daughters of women. All right. One, one nail in the coffin, I think, for the, the Sethite view. If Seth and his descendants were so godly, why did they all drown? Except for Noah, right? Why is a godly man marrying an ungodly woman? That's not very godly, is it? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The context of the passage. Now keep in mind here, folks, uh, listen to me very carefully. I've been studying this for months and months and months and months and months. Prayed. You wouldn't believe how Satan has fought me about preaching this today. You wouldn't believe it. I didn't get my PowerPoint done to what, 9 o'clock last night, Lori? Uh, and it's not because I just waited to the last minute. I mean, I have had one thing after another, after another, after another come up. Understand that you got about 1,600 years of human history compressed into about three verses, okay? So something here is telling us why there was a catastrophic flood that took place that wiped out the world's population. Something had to trigger that. And I'm going to suggest to you, it wasn't just the fact that unbelievers were marrying believers. Otherwise, grab a life jacket, brother. Or an oar, or, you know, or a kayak or whatever. Because this is about to get wet. All right. Let's go to the next slide. Now, to be fair, let's answer some objections. Okay? I try to be a reasonable guy. Well, mostly. <laughs> um, and, and the number one objection would be, well, you know, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says that the angels are, are sexless. But it doesn't actually say they're sexless. Here's what happens. Have you ever read Matthew 22? It's an interesting little story. The context of Matthew 22 is that the Sadducees have come to Jesus to try to trick, trip him up. Okay? And they're going to pre present this ridiculous scenario to him. I call it the riddle, the riddle of the black widow. He talks about seven brothers that marry the same woman and they all die. And you want to say to yourself, well, it looks like one of those brothers would wise up after a while, you know. Keep dropping like flies, you know. Yeah, I'll be sure. I'll be glad to marry. But there was the lever at marriage, you know. We, we'd studied all that. Here's the ironic thing. The Sadducees, if you read Acts chapter 23, verse 8, you don't have to turn there. We find out that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And they don't believe in angels. Did you know that? The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or spirit or the resurrection. That's Acts 23, verse 8. So then they present this, this hypothetical scenario to Jesus. Isn't that just like the devil? He's asking a question he's already made up his mind about. Isn't that just like the world? They're asking questions, but they've already made their mind up on the answer. And Jesus says uh, in Matthew 22, verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry. Notice that phrase, in the resurrection. They are nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God. Where? We're not talking about fallen angels here. And we're not talking about angels who are on earth. We're talking about angels who are in heaven. Same is true of men. In, in heaven, men are not going to be procreating. But on earth, do men procreate? All the time, right? Okay, uh, Hebrews 
13.2, uh, the writer says, Be not forgetful to entertain angels, for thereby... Strangers, I'm sorry. For thereby some have entertained too. Angels unaware. Now, those of you who have had the privilege of having me in your home, I know you've probably made that mistake before. You thought... All right, moving on. <laughs> Angels, however, now despite what the statues depict, despite what drawings and paintings, despite what uh, TV shows depict, Angels in the Bible, and that's what we're going by, right? Angels in the Bible are always masculine. They're not neuter, uh, neuter gender, or nor female. Um, let's just look at a few of these. I'm not going to go through all of them. For those that are listening on the, the podcast or uh, Facebook, um, you can look at Mark 16, verses 5 and 7, Luke 24, verse 4 and 7, Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. But I want the folks here with me today. Look in Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Verse 1, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the main plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three, what? Men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent and bowed himself toward the ground. Okay? So uh, from the context, this is the Lord and two angels. Now, uh, notice in verse 8. He took butter and milk and the calf that he addressed and sat it before them. This was a good old country meal, wasn't it? Okay. And stood by them under the tree, and what did they do? Angels ate, right? They had a body that was able to eat food. Okay. Uh, get over to uh, verse 22, and it says, And the men, notice it doesn't say angels, but that's what they are. And the men turned their faces from there and went toward where? Sodom. We'll get back to Sodom in a minute. But Abraham stood before the Lord, and Abraham starts bargaining with the Lord, right? If you can find 50 righteous, if you can find someone. Okay, so the two men, they went where? Sodom. Go to chapter 19, verse 1. And there came two what? Angels. Men, they appeared as men, okay? Now this is graphic here. Now look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, that's the city of Sodom, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about. Man, this is, this is heavy-duty stuff here. This is what I would call a militant agenda. Both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Notice this was pervasive. This is not just one person. This is an entire society or city. And they called Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them unto us that we may, King James says, know them. And I'll stick with that. But I'm going to tell you, they were not here to, to ask him questions. That's a euphemism, folks. So obviously they thought that those two angels were able to engage in some activity, uh, some ungodly activity. We know also that Jacob wrestled with the angel, right? <laughs> and what did the angel do to, to Jacob? Remember? He knocked the mess out of him. Knocked his hip out of socket. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Okay? I know that doesn't answer all the objections, but um, the next thing you might be asking is, well, Why? Why, why, would, why would Satan bother? Let's go to the next slide. If you don't understand Genesis 3.15, you won't understand the rest of the Bible. Now, I know some people say, man, Henry, this is some far out stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of far out like when, a, when, a, when the Satan takes the form of a snake and comes in the garden. That's pretty far out, ain't it? Or when God comes upon the, a virgin's womb and the Son of God is born, 
into the world and he dies on a cross and he goes uh, he he's goes into the tomb and he rises the third day and that's pretty far out isn't it <laughs> I mean I'm just showing you this is not so far out guys Genesis 3.15 is the first uh, gospel message I can't pronounce what it's called in Greek Cliff do you, do you know how to pronounce it the proto uh, yeah proto evangelium it's the first gospel message God says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And her seed, that's an interesting phrase. Normally you would talk about the seed of the man, right? You wouldn't talk about the seed of the woman. This is an allusion to the virgin birth early on. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. How many of you know it's worse to get bruised on the head than it is to get bruised on the heel? <laughs> Satan's no dummy. And he hears this prophecy. Okay? And that helps us understand what happens in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, where Cain kills his brother. Notice what 1 John 3.12 says. Not as Cain who was of that who? Wicked one. Now he was the child of Adam and Eve of course. But spiritually, he was a child of the devil. The devil murdered Cain because he wanted to get rid of the seed of the woman. That's what he wanted. And he thought that that would work. Did it work? No. Because God God's always ahead, right? He's always ahead. But now he's trying this monkey business in uh, Genesis chapter 6. He's try, what he's trying to do, I believe, is to prevent the Messiah from being born. Because the Messiah has to be fully God and fully what? Man. The theological term for that is the hypostatic union. And I think Satan's trying to, he's trying to prevent that from happening. Um, and if you understand that then, everything else starts to fall into place. You'll understand why Pharaoh's killing the babies. You'll understand why Haman wants to kill all the Jews. You'll understand why Sarah gets kidnapped. You'll understand why um, Herod's killing all the babies. He's trying to prevent the Messiah from being born. Next slide. There's a parallel to Genesis 3.6. If you don't speak Hebrew, you probably won't see it. Um, and I don't, and if I was a preacher, I probably wouldn't have seen it <laughs> either. In Genesis 3, 6, which is where Eve is tempted in the Garden of Eden, remember that? It says that she saw, the Hebrew word is ra'ah, the tree was good, the Hebrew word is tov, and she took, Hebrew word is latkot. In Genesis 6, 2, the angels did the same thing. They saw ra'ah, the daughters of men were now, the King James says fair, but the Hebrew word is the same, tov. And they did what? They took lakok. Same Hebrew word. So, um, by the way, the taking of a wife is a common expression for, uh, for marriage. Used throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the Bible. In Eve's case, she violated a boundary or a barrier between God and man. In the angel's case, they violated a boundary uh, or a barrier between the angels and men. Bringing about what I believe uh, is, the, is the root of the, the catastrophic flood in, in Genesis 6. All right, you're still not convinced, I'm sure, so let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the next slide. See, I told you these would go quickly. Now, I want you to look at these with me because I only put the reference up here. Go to 1 Peter 3. First Peter 3, and as you read it, it begins to make sense. These are some controversial passages in the, Old, in the New Testament. First Peter 3, and I'm going to get a drink of water that will give you time to get there.
Is everybody there? I still hear some shuffling. All right, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So this means Jesus died, right? But he was quickened by the Spirit. So even though Jesus' body was dead, his spirit was very much alive. Now, he's going to describe now what Jesus did. Verse 19, by which he went and preached unto who? That word spirits is never used of humans without a genitive, like the spirits of just men made perfect. Angels are spirits. He maketh his angels spirits, as ministers of flame of fire. Which sometime... Now, notice they're in prison. Are all fallen angels in prison? Are all demons bound? No. You'll figure it out as soon as you get home. <laughs> the devil's not bound. Is he going to try to cause problems, right? Satan, is Satan bound? No, not right now. But there's some spirits right now that are in prison. We sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited when? In the days of Noah. This sin, whatever it is, is tied to the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, we were in view that his eight souls were saved by water. This is why we don't judge success by numbers. If you judge success by numbers, then Noah was a failure. He only had eight converts, and they were family. How many of you know God doesn't count the way men count? All right. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, just to show you, uh, the like figure we're in baptism to save us. Notice in verse 22, he's gone into heaven. Notice Peter has taken us to the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension. Okay, you see that? He's now gone into heaven. That's the ascension. He's on the right hand of God. And who is subject unto him? Angels and authorities and powers. Angelic beings. Okay. All right, now let's go to 2 Peter. If you're in 1 Peter, it should not be hard to find 2 Peter. Amen? Just go east. Go east, young man. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now the word for hell here is the Greek word Tartarus. It's only used the one time in the New Testament. It's a special place of imprisonment or incarceration. Um, outside, of Greek outside of the Bible and Greek literature uh, is spoken of of the, of the deepest, darkest place of the abyss. Doesn't sound like anywhere you'd want to go on vacation, right? Bad place. And deliver them unto what? Chains of darkness. So they're bound. Reserved unto judgment. So they're not getting out. And spared not the old world, but saved who? Notice he ties again the angels with Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the flood of Noah and the sin of Sodom are always linked together too, by the way. It's interesting. Making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. Okay, now let's go to Jude. Jude is right before Revelation. So just go east a little bit further. And when you get there, just say, praise the Lord. Well, that was weak, but that's okay. All right. Jude, Jude is talking about apostates or false teachers. And brother, they're here. They were there in Jude's day, and they're everywhere now. It's called progressive Christianity. You ought to read Franklin Graham's recent uh, article about progressive Christianity. I'm not going to get into it right now. But that's what he, this is what Jude's describing. Verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, 
but left their own habitation. The Greek word is okaterion. It's only used here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in both cases, it, it involves a change of, of, of existence. In 2 Corinthians 5, I think it is, Paul is talking about we're going to trade in this earthly body for a heavenly body. But in this case, they traded in a heavenly body for an earthly body. Okay. Do your own research. Don't believe it because I said it. Do a search on Okaterion. All right. Um, but left their own habitation. He has reserved for how long? In everlasting chains under darkness. When? Until the white throne judgment, right? So they're going to go, whoever these guys are, they're going straight from there to the white throne, to the lake of fire. Now look at verse 7. And this is going to offend some of you, but, you know, I've got to preach God's word. Notice it says, whatever the angels did, it's even as. Is that what your Bible says? Or something similar, in like manner? Similar fashion? As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities abound them in like, it, notice it says, in like manner. In like manner to what? To what the angels did. You see that? Are y'all with me here? In like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. Now some of you, your translation will say perversion. But the, the text actually says strange flesh. Heteros sarks in the Greek. Going after strange flesh are set forth in this example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Folks, Sodom and Gomorrah did not burn because of a lack of hospitality. It burned because of sexual immorality. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin was homosexuality. It was strange flesh. It was out of the normal order. And what happened in Genesis 6 was out of the normal order. It was, it was breaking God's design for marriage. Okay, You say, well, Henry, you hate homosexuals. No, I don't. I have homosexuals in my family. I love them. I don't hate them. We live in a culture that says if you disagree with someone, if, now let me put it this way, if you don't affirm someone's lifestyle, then you hate them. Not true. I have drunks and alcoholics that I'm friends with. I don't hate them. I love them. But I can't condone what they're doing. I know people that commit adultery. I don't hate them. I love them, but I don't like what they're doing. Right? People that gossip. Oh, don't get quiet on me. Come on. We're in church. You see, God's, he's confirming this thing. Listen, I hate gossip, but I don't hate people that gossip. I just don't want to hear it. Okay? And people will say, well, Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Well, that's an argument from silence. Jesus never addressed freebasing cocaine or, you know, domestic violence. That's, but I think Jesus actually did address homosexuality. Turn with me to Matthew, um, Matthew 19. This is not in my notes, by the way. Matthew 19. Now, we've already looked at the Sadducees and their messed up thinking. You know what Jesus said to the Sadducees? He said, you guys don't know the scriptures. I, I find that so funny. Because that's what they did. They spent their whole life reading the Bible. Uh, and Jesus said, you don't understand the scriptures. And he talks about the angels and about the resurrection. Okay. Now in Matthew 19, here comes the Pharisees. Okay. Verse 3. Now we got the next bunch of religious folk that know their Bible backwards and forwards, right? The Pharisees came to Jesus, tempting him. Notice their motives are not pure. And saying, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, I'm pretty sure the Pharisees didn't have a British accent, but that's just how I read that thing. <laughs> it's like the, the Jesus from Jesus of Nazareth. He's got that great British accent. Um, what they're doing is trying to get him to take a position because there's two different rabbinical views. One rabbinical view has, was conservative and said you could only get divorced in the case of adultery. There was another rabbinic view that was pretty liberal and it said if a woman burned the toast, you could get rid of her. Okay? I'm serious. 
and, and some of you guys are thinking, yeah, I'm siding with that guy. He, he's on to something. No. So what they're trying to do is get Jesus to take a side, but Jesus takes them where? To Genesis. Don't tell me Jesus didn't address this issue of sexuality. Jesus answered unto them, he says, have you not read? Now that's funny. Because that's what they spend their whole life doing is reading the Bible. He says, guys, have you not read that he which made them at when? At the beginning, in Genesis. He made how many genders? Goodness gracious. Why is it that the devil is trying to fight us on every single thing that God instituted in the book of Genesis? He made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his what? And they too shall be one flesh. So to those that would say Jesus did not address the topic of sexuality, I would say he did. He said there are two genders and a marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Anything else is adultery, fornication, whatever. Are y'all still with me? I, 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 don't, I don't tell you this because I hate you. I'm telling you this because I love you. And I, and I would have never thought, <laughs> I would have never thought when I started out in ministry that I would have to defend these things. But see, the spirit of the age is trying to normalize everything. It's trying to normalize what God says is not normal. Okay? And I love you, even if you disagree with me. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now God speaks. He says, my spirit will not always strive with man. You know, the Holy Spirit right now, and we've been studying the upper room discourse and the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Right now, the Holy Spirit is doing three things in relation to the world. I'm not talking about the believer and in relation to the world. The Holy Spirit is doing three things. He's convicting the world of unbelief. He's convicting the world of righteousness. And he's convicting the world of judgment. The Holy Spirit is doing those three things. And I think in our evangelism, we fall short because we're not working on those three things. We're trying to get folks to quit drinking. The man's problem is not alcohol. The man's problem is he needs Jesus. <laughs> we're trying to get folks to quit fornicating. Well, that's, that's a sin, no doubt. But the, the, the big issue is they need to get saved. And then when they get saved, guess what? God will start working on them about their issues. I would say the same is true for homosexuality. You know, I think that the church too often has taken an angry stance toward homosexuality. We're angry about it. You know why? Because most of us don't struggle with it. And we're, and we're angry. And it's easy to preach against that. But you know what 1 Corinthians Paul says to them? He says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he mentions homosexuals among others. He says, and such were some of you. You see, a person can get saved and be delivered from any lifestyle. I don't care what it is. Any aberrant lifestyle. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's convicting. Here's what's going to send people to hell. Rejecting Jesus Christ. That's it. Okay. Uh, man here, notice he says my spirit. He doesn't say my spirit shall always strive with the angels. You notice that? Now, the angels he dealt with, he put them in prison. They're still there, by the way. Long time ago, they're still there. But he didn't say, my spirit shall strive with the, the demons. He said, my spirit shall not always strive with who? Man. So regardless of your view, whether you're the Sethite or the angel view, man is responsible for his sin. Now, it's interesting that God says he's flesh. You see that in the text, Genesis 6, is it 3? He's flesh. And I think this reveals the motivation of the fallen angels. Because I don't know about you, but I look at that story and I think, well, gosh, what would be the appeal 
you know, of allowing these angels to do this or these demons? What would be the appeal of it? I think the appeal is the same thing that Satan used in the garden. Genesis 5 is like the great obituary of the Bible, right? So and so lived, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. I think they thought through this they would reach immortality. And basically, that's what every false religion teaches. See, Satan is the father of all false religion. He is. If you don't worship Jesus, you're worshiping the devil. There's not, there's not three options. There's two. Satan is the father of all false religion. And you know, and I heard John MacArthur say this. The devil never markets his theology by saying, you know, if you'll believe this, I'll take you straight to hell. He never does that. But he always promises what? Immortality. If you follow this path, you'll live forever. Like the Mormons believe, you'll become a god. It's the same thing Satan offered uh, in the garden. But God says, no, your flesh. Now he says, now notice at the end of verse 3, and we're, we're getting close to the end here, okay? So stick with me a little bit longer. Notice at the end of verse 3, God says, yet his days shall be 120 years. And a lot of the commentators say, well, that's the life expectancy of humans here. Well, if you notice, after the flood, the lifespan of human beings drastically goes down. And we could talk about that at some other point. Not today. But I don't think this is what it's teaching. Because after this, you've got Abraham that lives to be, what, 175? And Isaac lives to be 180. I uh, can't remember how old Jacob live right offhand but um, I don't think he's talking about lifespan you know how I know this I didn't get this out of the commentary all the commentaries missed it brother Cliff every one of them did and I'm not bragging on myself because if, if, if God shows you anything it's because he showed it to you it's not because you're so doggone smart Amen. <laughs> I, I'm telling you I'm a dummy don't believe everything just because I tell you search the Bible out for yourself be a Berean. Acts chapter 17. How many of you know what is the oldest psalm in the Bible? Anybody know? I preached a sermon on it like three years ago. So that tells me y'all don't remember a doggone thing I preach. <laughs> now if you're a visitor here, I'm letting you off the hook. You weren't here. The oldest psalm in the Bible. Go ahead and turn there is Psalm 90. Turn to Psalm 90. Now, who wrote the book of Genesis? The Holy Spirit did, but who did he use? Moses, right? He was the editor of all these genealogies and such. He put it together. The Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Bible. You know how I know this? It's because it tells me who wrote it. Who wrote Psalm 90? Moses did. I use this psalm a lot at funerals. Notice verse 10 of Psalm 90, which was written by who? Moses. The days of our years are what? Three score and ten. And if by reason of strength they be four score years... Yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Let me give you the Henry Haney translation. Uh, our life expectancy is around 70 years old, and if we live to be 80, everything starts falling apart. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. I finally preached something that resonates with you. <laughs> I know if I kept digging, I'd get there. <laughs> okay. So Moses sees the life expectancy of humans as what? Around 70. So I don't think that, that Genesis 6-3 is talking about life expectancy. I think he's talking about from that point in time, it would be 120 years until the flood. It would be roughly that period of time when Noah 
would have to construct that three-story boat, okay? Now, think about that. God could have just wiped everybody out. He could have. He would have been justified in doing so. But he waited another 120 years. Now, think about this, guys. I want you to, let's make it real. So, you know, it helps to visualize something. This is the year 2022, right? If you go back to the year, go back 120 years, where does that put us? 1902, is that right? Wow. Are the Wright brothers flying planes yet? Is Henry Ford got the, the model, whatever he put together, T or whatever? Are automobiles roaming airplanes in the sky? Color television. Satellites. GPS. Internet. There's been a lot that's happened in 120 years. Would you agree? That's a long time. In our, you know, not to God. To God, every day is a thousand, you know, one day is like a thousand years. But to us, 120 years, that's a long time. You know, our nation's not even 300 years old. That's like half the, you know, half the life of our nation. God gave all of these folks a chance to repent of their sin. All right, there's only two more slides, and these will go real quick. One more slide. Uh, next slide, please. What is the relevance to today? In Luke 17, verse 26, Jesus said, As it was in the days of who? Noah, so shall it be also in the days of who? That's when he returns. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed how many? All but eight. Notice this. Likewise also as it was in the days of who? Notice Noah and Lot are always together. The flood and the, the destruction of Sodom. All right, let's go to the next slide. Last one. Some of you are rejoicing right now. You say, that's, that's what I've been waiting to hear. Last slide, preacher. You can breathe a sigh of relief. The end is near. I can almost hear the soundtrack, the chariots of fire. You know, is there... Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. What are the application here? Some of you are too young to understand that movie. That's okay. Uh, the scriptures disprove the term is uniformitarianism. Okay. Second Peter three, and I'm not going to turn there, but but in Second Peter three, notice Peter likes to talk a lot about Noah, doesn't he? I wonder if it's because he's a fisherman. Maybe that story appealed to him. I don't know. But uh, he talks a lot about Noah. Uh, interesting thing here that Jesus Christ affirms the story of Noah and the flood and Jesus affirms the story of Lot and Sodom so Jesus did speak to these issues uh, Genesis is a hotly debated book but Jesus viewed the events of Genesis as literal not allegories um, 2 Peter 3 uh, says that in the days of Noah that everybody thought things were going to continue just like they always have. That's uniformitarianism. But God has shown at least twice, you could count the Tower of Babel too, and creation, that in the, issue, the instance of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, God has intervened to judge sin. God will punish the immorality of any society. Whether it's the antediluvians, and that means the people who lived before the flood, or the Sodomites, or dare I say, the United States of America. Listen, the same thing that God destroyed Sodom for, we're parading in the streets, saying, well, this is the way it ought to be. Shaking our fists in the face of God. Shaking our fists in the face of God. Folks, Jesus is coming again. He's coming. Now, the first time he came to deal with sin, he's not coming to die on a cross next time. The next time he's coming is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
and he's coming with a sharp two-edged sword and he's going to execute judgment on each and every person that has rejected him regardless of race, religion, creed, whatever if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior Jesus is coming back not as your Savior but as your judge but here's the good news I didn't read this from 2 Peter 3 but Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. He said, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That was true in Noah's day. God waited 120 years. And it's true of this day too, my friend. Look around you. The signs are all around the signs are all around. We are living in the days of Noah, and we're living in the days of Lot. No man knows the day or the hour. Only a fool would try to set dates for that kind of thing. Jesus says don't. And it's not, it's not uh, fruitful to try to engage in a lot of speculation either. You know, don't, don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out uh, who the Nephilim were and, and the Sethites and the angel of you. I only present this to you because it's in the word of God. Okay? There was a reason that the flood came. And the reason the flood came is because men followed the leadership of demons. And demons are in control of this world. If you, you remember our study of Daniel? Remember there was this fellow called the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece? Behind world leaders are demons. There is a reason why the world is in the shape that it's in. There's a reason. It's because Satan is the God of this world. And Paul says this to the Ephesian believers. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age or this world, and spiritual wickedness where? In heavenly realms or high places. Paul says that's where we are. Okay? So let's focus our effort. Let's don't focus on the demons, okay? That's, that, that's unfruitful. C.S. Lewis said we, we make two mistakes, either to ignore the demons altogether or, number two, to be obsessed with them. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing him, of course. What we need, the thing that you and I need to settle in our hearts right now today is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Would you stand? I thank you for your patience this morning. And I understand this altar is kind of, we've got some things here, but don't let that discourage you if you want to make a profession of faith. These two benches, these two prayer benches here on the front row, if you want to come use these for an altar, that's okay. You may be here today, and maybe all of this is stuff you've never heard before. But I'm here to tell you, God's word is true. God's word is true. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. You've waited all this long. Let me not leave you without presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son into this sin-stained, corrupted world. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He was tempted in all points like you and I are, yet without sin. He died on Calvary's cross in your place. And in my place, on that cross, he died for each and every sin. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says he's the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He went into that grave, just like Peter said. He went there. And when he went to, when he went to the spirits in prison, I didn't bring this out. It says that he preached to the spirits in prison. That was not evangelism. That was a proclamation. The Greek word is keruso. What was the proclamation that he made to the spirits in prison? I believe what he said is this. Your plan to keep me from coming to earth failed miserably. The plan that the Father and I had from the foundation of the world was accomplished. Jesus came and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And he arose from the grave on the third day showed himself alive by many infallible proofs for 40 days. 
He was seen of over 500 witnesses at one time in a resurrected body. Then 10 days later, the Bible says that he, uh, he, he, after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he is there with a name above every name. And he sent his Holy Spirit here today to call you to say, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Savior is waiting. Won't you come?